Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. Happy New Year! I hope everyone listening had a restful and enjoyable holiday period, but now it's back to business. Dan Marie Dor will be joining us for a wide-ranging discussion on the new Israeli government and its plans for, well, everything, but especially the overhaul of the Israeli judiciary and the West Bank. Dan Marie Dor was famously cabinet secretary in the 1990s for the Likud governments of Menachem Begin and Yitzhak Shamir, and later a Knesset member for the Likud. He then went on to serve as Minister of Justice, Minister of Finance in Benjamin Netanyahu's first government back in the 1990s, and later in Netanyahu's second government in 2009, Marie Dor served as Deputy Prime Minister and Intelligence Minister. He famously broke with the Likud and Bibi Netanyahu twice, and in recent years has become a sharp critic of both the party and the prime minister. Uh, for my money, no one knows both, as well as Dan Maridor, which is why we're very happy to have him on this week. But first, a few thoughts from me. Look, uh, yeah, there's a lot going on, so let's try and make some sense of the state of play now two weeks into the reign of the new Netanyahu government. Uh, obviously, the big issue late last week, Likud Justice Minister Yariv Lavin unveiled his plan to effectively undermine the independence of the Israeli judicial system with emphasis, for starters, on the Supreme Court. The plan calls for the removal of the court's ability to strike down government decisions or Knesset legislation. And even if the court does strike down these decisions or bills, then the government plans on passing an override clause that will allow the Knesset, with just a simple 61-seat majority, to quote-unquote override the court's decision. For good measure, Levine also plans to hand complete control over the judicial appointment process to the ruling coalition, i.e. they can, in theory, pack the court with whatever judges they want. Levine was clear, too, that this is just stage one and that there's more in the offing, but this will effectively mean majoritarian rule. With no real checks on the Knesset majority or the government, Levine and Prime Minister Netanyahu have called this the will of the people, restoring sovereignty to the Israeli public via their Knesset representatives. Critics of the plan, for their part, and this is literally every prominent legal official, jurist, and opposition leader, have argued, correctly in my opinion, that if implemented, this is a systemic coup an unchecked power grab, and perhaps the end of Israeli democracy as we've known it. Uh, and in my conversation with Dan Maridoro, you'll hear why. So what now? Well, basically, protest and demonstrations, i.e. a battle for public opinion, the hearts and minds of the Israeli citizenry. Many former officials and even some current officials have taken to the media, and former Defense Minister Benny Gantz and current opposition leader Yair Lapid have called on the entire public to take to the streets to, as Gantz put it, make the country shake. Netanyahu and his government, for their part, have shown no intention, for now, of backing down. I wish I could tell you how this all ends, but no one really knows, because nothing like this has ever happened here in Israel before. Let's get to Dan Maridor. Dan Maridor, welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. Thank you so much for being with us today. Good to be with you. Uh, it's our pleasure, really. Uh, 
there is obviously a lot to discuss. And honestly, uh, it's a bit difficult to know where to begin, given everything going on in Israel right now, which is, I think, the big reason why I wanted you on this week as someone who has been involved at the very highest levels of Israel's political and defense and judicial systems. So let's start here with the big issue of the day, the planned reforms by the Netanyahu government and Justice Minister Yariv Levine to, quote unquote, reform or some would say overhaul or destroy the Israeli legal and judicial system. So right off the bat, Dan, what do you think of the plan proposed by Yariv Levine last week? Are you as alarmed as some here who say this may be the end of any judicial independence and even the end or the beginning of the end of Israeli democracy? What do you think? Well, uh, to correction, it's not a reform in a way to deform the system. Deform. To change it completely. Second, uh, uh, Yariv Levine is just a tool. This is his uh, idea, maybe, but it's Netanyahu, definitely, without whom this would not have happened. And he's the uh, man behind it. It's, uh, if you like, Netanyahu's legacy would be this. What is it? It's really a complete uh, destruction of the balance that we had here between the uh, branches of government and one needs to say, you see, we don't have a constitution. Unfortunately, it was Ben-Gurion who didn't want it. A big mistake. We tried along the years to uh, write the basic laws as chapters and constitution. I had the privilege as Justice Minister for the Likud to introduce or to, to initiate the, what you call the uh, constitutional revolution. In other words, the basic laws of human rights. And in fact, uh, as we don't have a separate election to Congress and President. We have just the Knesset. And the government, in fact, controls the Knesset uh, to a large extent. And the Prime Minister controls the government. The only balance, the only counterforce to a complete rule by the majority was the court. And the Israeli courts from day one were the uh, forum, the judges were the forum where the basic principles of democracy were established the freedom of speech, the equality, those are not in the law. The case had never legislated them. It was the court. Now, this uh, proposal or this plan uh, wants to have government without any checks and balances. Majority can do all as if majority rule is the essence of democracy. Definitely, uh, rule of majority is part of democracy. It's a necessary part. It's not by any way the sufficient part. Uh, democracy has to do with human rights, group rights, defending human rights and group rights. The center is the individual, not the state or God or Pope uh, or King. This is the essence. And if you have a government that, in fact, will control uh, the Knesset, in fact, they do, and the court will be under them, and they will have a way to overrule everything the court does if they don't like it, this will be a very different Israel, shamefully, I have to say. Right. That's the major concern from vast parts of Israeli society and definitely the opposition. Uh, what do you think is motivating? You say it's Netanyahu behind this, which I tend to agree. What do you think his motivation is? What do you think his uh partners in the coalition government, what are their motivations? Uh, you, uh, as somebody who served uh, with Menachem Begin, this really runs counter to his and Likud's historic position, right, on a strong and independent judicial branch, uh, 
Begin famously said, uh, there are judges in Jerusalem. So what do you think is motivating now the modern day Likud and their modern day prime minister? Well, you asked me two questions, one about the Likud, second about what motivates what happens mm-hmm. now. So I start with the Likud. Uh, the Likud's name officially given by Begin is Likud, which means union, and then national liberal movement. There was a combination of the two flags, the uh, Jewish nation flag, which definitely is our flag and our our objective in life. We all fought for a Jewish state. It's very dear to us, very important. Uh, and the second is the liberal cause, that is democracy, human rights, rule of law, and all of this. And the balance between these two values is the genetic code of the Likud. This is what it was. And Begin, that you cited, used to say in speeches, we need the court to overrule the majority in issues of human rights and to be able to uh, declare unconstitutional laws that that uh, uh, bridge uh, that, that fight human rights and, and, and destroy them in an improper way. And I was uh, the one as Minister of Justice who initiated exactly this. This was the Likud all these years. Why do I say it? Because, you see, we had many fights in politics here on reparations from Germany, on land and peace, whatnot. But there was always an agreement on two basic uh, fundamental issues. One, the basic values were agreed. Second, the rules of the game were agreed. Without these, such a divided society cannot really survive in a proper way. The values were agreed in that, and this has changed. Today, if I speak for human rights, democracy, uh, uh, rule of law, I'm depicted as leftist, but this was the language of Begin and Likud. Second, uh, uh, the rule of the game, that is to say that we all accept the uh, decision of the court, even if we don't like it, because this is how a society lives. These two uh, elements are now under huge attack, and they are to be changed if this reform uh, gets through. Uh, why does it get through? It does get through. Uh, why was it initiated? I believe reasons. There were people uh, who were on the margin uh, of society who did not accept these values. Take the value of equality. Why did not the Knesset to this day write in any any basic law the simple sentence uh, all uh, persons or people are uh, equal before the law? It's not there. Why? Because some people don't accept that men and women are equal. Or that Arab are equal, or that gay and straight are equal. And they say it. They, they did not agree, and it's not there. It's only the court that made equality a major principle, basic principle of our system. And uh, so there are people who, who don't accept these values and they come from a different, uh, different world, so to speak, uh, of, of messianic thinking, as if it's all a religious uh, movement and we have to abide by the supreme Law, what we call the messianic part of national religious Zionism is getting stronger. So there are people who ideologically never wanted a strong power, a strong force like the Supreme Court and the legal system as a whole to to limit their ability to do what they want. For example, uh, some two or three years ago, four years ago, they passed a law that allowed uh, private land uh, in the in Judea and Samara that was taken from private people uh, for, for settlements to be given to the settlers. And the court abolished this law. So they don't want the limits on the power 
of of the of the government of the majority when it infringes on human rights minority rights could it be could be arab or jew or whatever and second there is the story of netanyahu i don't know whether netanyahu was a liberal person ever i don't think he even called himself liberal he would be on the other side but he was not against the legal system either because he understood its importance or because he understood it's very strong and he defended the system as prime minister against the uh, attempts to change it to to harm it to uh, weaken it and he said it publicly he was proud of doing that he had good relationship with Aaron Barak with Dori Benish all those years well about years ago there was the beginning of the interrogation suspicion that Netanyahu breached the law in terms of bribe uh, or other improper corrupt uh, behaviors and uh, after the police investigated the state attorney decided and the, the attorney general appointed by him by the way decided to indict him there was indictment and now there's a trial going on all these uh, events have led him to act in a in the most outrageous way the system is against me I'm against the system So he delegitimized the police, the state attorney's office, the attorney general, even the judges for being leftists, for uh, uh, faking the, the, the uh, indictment against him. And this is a very powerful uh, man. Unfortunately, when he says fake, fake, fake about the, these people, half of the people in Israel believe him. So he, he, he really caused huge damage. So there's two combinations of two things, ideological Uh, disagreement with the values and the forces the court has in, in supporting, defending these values. And there is the personal Netanyahu story. And this combination brought us to where we are today. Right. Um, by the way, just for our listeners, uh, Aaron Barak and Dorit Benish, uh, former chief justices of the Israeli Supreme Court, uh, just for the record. Yes, I saw that. I did. know that, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we usually try to, to make it simple for our listeners. Uh, um Just to tie up the issue of, of the Likud party itself, uh, your history, obviously, with the party goes back to your, your birth. Uh, your father famously was a uh, commander of the Irgun, the Etzel, in the pre-state period, and then a Knesset member for the Chirut party, uh, which was the forerunner to the Likud. Uh, you yourself, as we mentioned, were Menachem Begin's cabinet secretary at the start of your political career. So, Dan, maybe this seems like a obvious or maybe not so obvious question, but what happened to the party? Uh, or maybe put another way, how have things changed so dramatically inside the Likud party, which uh, for the better part of 40 years has been the ruling party here in Israel? Well, uh, in fact, person Netanyahu is the leader who stopped leading into that uh, balance of liberal and, and uh, uh, national values. But the, the party uh, was what it was because leaders led it this way. Leadership changed. And the, uh, the um, mixture or the balance of the values of liberal uh, democracy and the national cause was uh, dis disturbed very, very deeply. And now it's, I would say, a nationalist party, some, to some extent, many more religious elements in it. And the liberal cause is not their cause. You can't see a, a member of the Kansas Likud standing up for any liberal cause defending uh, human rights against the rule of majority. This change, why is it? Uh, I, can, I can look at the United States and in Europe 
and think of uh, what happens in the world today. If you want, I'll say some sentence about this. You know, historically, after 1945, after the, the, the horrors of the Second World War were exposed to the world, not only to us Jews, definitely, but to the world uh, as a whole, there was a very important trend all over the world uh, to limit the rule of majority, the rule of state, and, and focus on human rights and defending human rights, even against majority by international law. Think of it that the uh, Nazi uh, perpetrators, uh, criminals, were hanged in Nuremberg, although they broke no German law. But the world said to them then, there's something above the state, above majority, and you broke these basic values, crimes against humanity. And this idea that, that there, is, there is the person and human rights of the person, the group, the state is not all and majority is not all, uh, this trend was winning. Uh, and you saw the collapse or the, the decline of authoritarian regimes in many parts of the world. I can't say it happened in the Arab world, not there, but all the way in South America, in, in other places, in Africa, but mainly all the way to the collapse of the Soviet Union which led mistakenly Mr. Fukuyama to think we reached the end of history, liberals won it. So you see, look at the world today, see President Trump, I don't want to go, you know it better than I do, look at what happens in, in, uh, in uh, say, Poland and Hungary who were under Soviet influence and, the, and tasted democracy and go back to authoritarian, what they call illiberal uh, democracy, which is no democracy in fact, Think of what happens in France with Marine Le Pen getting 42%, I think, of the votes. Think of uh, Italy with the Prime Minister now that uh, was a supporter of Mussolini uh, uh, ideas. Think of Sweden. Uh, look where the world is going. Uh, and uh, there is a backlash back to identity, either national or religious. Look at the Muslim world. One kills the other because he's Shia or Sunnah. Religiously, not because of what he did or what he thinks, but because of his religion, because the identity is more important than the, the, the values, than the, what he did or what you did or where you want to go. And so it's a national thing. America first, the state first, we are first. Human rights is not that important. So there is a world trend, I must say, quite of concern to, of people who did not uh, or don't remember what happened with authoritarian regimes earlier. And so we are part of that trend and added to the fact that we don't have a constitution. We are a young nation and there's an international or inter-people inter, uh, uh, conflict, Jews and Arabs, it's much more dangerous. Right. So you're saying that uh, the trends coming out of, I say, I guess the late 90s and now for the past 20 years have uh, not spared Israel and not spared the Likud party uh, itself either. And so we're seeing a greater shift to the right and to more identity politics and uh, ultra-nationalists. And I, and I add one more thing, and I add one more thing, not on the democratic side of, of us, of me, but on the Jewish side. You see, we Jews have been, and many of us still are, minorities for since the exile 2,000 years ago, all over the world. And we were uh, dealt with as minorities, individually and group-wise, uh, not very fairly, let me put it uh, mm -hmm. mildly. So it's not a surprise that in the last 200 years or so, 300 years, that uh, human rights and democracy became more and more important 
the Jews were among the leaders of human rights movements all over the world, in America, in South Africa, where not. Uh, Jews were among the drafters of the European Convention on Human Rights, the UN Convention. It was very much a Jewish cause to defend minorities, to defend individuals against the majority. Now, thank God, or thank ourselves and our fathers and forefathers, we are a majority in our country. Now we stand to a moral test, how we deal with individuals and minorities when we have the power. Do we treat them the way we were treated, or do we do what we wanted others to do and, and plead right. for? It's not only a, a, a democratic test, it's a Jewish test. And my Jewish values tell me you need to treat the others, not because only because they treated us not right. Because this is what is written in the, in the Bible, in, in the Torah, if you like. You have to love the other, the stranger, because you were strangers or, or gerim in, in Egypt. This is in, 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 our, in our Chumash, in our Torah. So how are we Jewishly and democratically? And I'm afraid that this um, plan, if it gets through, really create an Israel that it will be very difficult for us. And I, I, we live in it. It's our country. We don't have any other country. We'll fight for these values, go on fighting for them. But it's a major shift. If it right. Happens. And I guess the natural follow-up question would be if Yerib Levine and the current government actually push through this package of legislation, uh, undercutting the independence of the Supreme Court and a whole slew of other, quote-unquote, uh, reforms, as they call it, uh, which, by the way, Yerib Levine says is only stage one. There's uh, very clearly going to be another stage uh, likely going to try to halt Netanyahu's corruption trial. But, Don, if they actually push this through – what can they do? I mean, obviously, I guess the, the answer would be they can do whatever they want. But how, how concerned are you that they're going to start actually legislating all kinds of laws that undermine exactly what you're talking about? Uh, notions of equality and human rights and minority rights. What they will do, I don't know. But what they will be able to do, I know. And this is why page one, as, as Levine said, is what he, what he spoke of. That is to say, to uh, weaken the Supreme Court and to take from the Supreme Court the right to overrule a majority government against a law that is. He needs that to continue. When, the, when this obstacle is taken out of the way, they can continue and write or legislate almost everything they want, thinking that there's no institution that will stop them or, or reverse what they are doing. This is why it's dangerous, because they, we lose the balance that is so critical. Checks and balances in American expression uh, the the uh, equilibrium we need between the, the branches of government and not have all the power and force in one person. So what they will do, I don't know about about the, the settlements, about Netanyahu's trial, definitely, in all sorts of tricks and ways. It's not only the court. They may want to replace the attorney general or to divide its function to the, uh, to the head of the prosecution and the one who gives advices. And they may change the uh, the uh, uh, criminal uh, criminal paragraph in the criminal code that uh, he's dealing with. He's charged with. I don't know what they will do. Uh, I I I think that this is uh, it's all possible. And he didn't specify what comes next, but he begins with taking with changing the balance. So they will be able to do much more than they can do. Now. I see. So they they have the option or the possibility of doing essentially anything they want. Yeah, of course, there is the people of Israel. And I don't think that, uh, uh, and I hope 
the people will not take it as just another reform that would benefit us and would improve the system. It's all rubbish. I mean, there is a, a lot that can be, can be reformed in every system. A powerful system needs to be reformed from time to time and needs to be, to be a change if changes are needed. But they are not about reforming or improving. They are about destroying and changing the balance of power. It's not the same thing. This is why I, I think that we, are, we need to uh, look very carefully. And the people of Israel need to ask themselves what they can and want to do. I, I want to stress one thing. I do speak to you with IPF because I speak to Jewish audience. I don't call on, on foreigners and definitely not on foreign governments to interfere. I'm not, uh, I think we Israelis should solve it in our own way. And as an Israeli patriot, I, would, I don't call for others to do it. And I usually don't speak on foreign press on these issues, uh, unless very extreme cases. It's up to the Israeli people. Of course, we can get advice from others, but it's our, it's our issue. And I hope the Israeli people will find ways uh, of, of protesting, of writing, of talking, of, of uh, put a defense against this attack. It's not going to be easy. It may take time. But uh, in the meantime, we, keep, we need to keep the light on, not off, of these basic values on which Israel was established. Yeah, uh, 100%. Uh, we're going to get to the Israeli public in just a second. Uh, but first, we'll be right back after this brief message. Israel Policy Forum works to strengthen support for advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to preserve Israel's future as Jewish, democratic, and secure. We provide constructive policy analysis and pragmatic policy recommendations, produce credible research reports, deliver thoughtful and nuanced commentary, build engaging and innovative educational content, and create informational video content covering critical issues. We are trusted as a reliable resource in Washington and the Jewish community. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of the two-state solution, read the Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau's weekly article on current events, engage with our young professional network, IPF Atid, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. If you rely on Israel Policy Forum for credible, informational, and thoughtful analysis, please make a gift today to ensure that Israel Policy Forum's work continues to have an impact. Donate now at israelpolicyforum.org support. Last question, Dan, and I have to ask this question uh, about the Likud and Netanyahu. You were uh, famously part of the generation called the Likud Princes, uh, people with familiar roots, uh, such as yourself in the party, who themselves then went into public life, uh, thinking of Benny Begin, Menachem Begin's son, Michal Eitan, Ehud Olmert, uh, Tzipi Livni, uh, Likud Princess, but still, uh, and some others, I think. Uh, your generation was uh, slated to maybe take over the party or really uh, control the party for decades to come. And then along comes this outsider, this uh, returning quote-unquote American, Bibi Netanyahu, who spent so many years outside of Israel. Dan, you have more hours with Netanyahu than I think pretty much anyone else, going back really to the late 80s and early 90s. Why, in your opinion, was Netanyahu so successful in seizing the top spot in the Likud in the early 90s and essentially retaining that top spot uh, for now the better part of three decades? How do you explain uh, his political success, I guess? Well, first one has to say he was politically very successful. Second, I have to say he's an intelligent person. 
knowledgeable, more than most politicians I know. Of course, there are other people who may be more intelligent in the academia and other places, but among politicians, he's, he's uh, knowledgeable and he, he uh, has a way in talking very good English and Hebrew and, uh, and more so. I, I, I don't want to give you, I can't give you an explanation, but very simplistic things. He brought in new ways to Israeli politics Can I say openly, American ways of politics? I remember the first time in 1996, I think it was, when he was first elected in the election campaign, he brought in uh, Arthur Finkelstein. Yeah. I had the, many hours with him, and I saw how a different uh, way of uh, campaigning was brought in. I remember Arthur telling me, telling me why do you do campaign uh, uh, videos of three minutes, not more than 30 <laughs> seconds, and repeat it? And again, don't explain in depth. And I told him, is it selling Coke, Coca-Cola? He said, yeah, yeah, it's like the same thing. And it changed the system in a way, the Americanizing system. Now, I'm, I'm not saying it's only this. Tanyao is talented. He's almost professional in dealing with, with focus groups, with, with polls. And he's very focused on himself. Uh, uh, and he was able to democratically take over the Likud, uh, the leadership of the Likud. And I can't, uh, I can't complain. This was the, the, the rule of the game. I accepted it. I, I didn't vote for him, but I accepted the results. I worked with him. I was the Minister of Finance under him until I couldn't get any, couldn't get any longer, and I resigned. But I was with him. Later, I was the Deputy Minister, Minister of Intelligence, other things. I, I did work with him, cooperate with him, and hopefully I influenced him in, in ways that I thought were right. But these things changed. People like me are not there anymore. And not only in terms of ideology, but in terms of other terms. Not that we were princes. We were never princes of anybody. We were not born of kings or queens. We were people who uh, had a certain, uh, certain, shall I say, coming from certain education and certain way of life. But uh, this has changed. He has other people around him. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, what you see here, let me say this, you know, Netanyahu is not unpatriotic. Netanyahu loves Israel. I don't I don't think differently. But uh, he loves himself more. And when it comes to a conflict, uh, he would destroy the system if the system is after him in terms of equality. System deals with him like the dented Rabin who had to resign because he was about to be indicted. And uh, like uh, Olmert or Katsav or, or the other ministers, we had a very good system. We really had equality as a basic principle. And we... We, not me, I mean, the, the police, the, the state attorney, the attorney general, try to treat even the strong guys, politically strong, economically strong, financially strong, equally. And if they, they break the law or are suspected of having broken the law, we sued them. And, and they were brought to trial somewhere, acquitted somewhere, convicted. And when they tried to touch him, <clears throat> he would destroy them. And as he is very powerful in the populace, in the population, He has many people believing the lies that he says, that it's all fake, it's all fake, and they are leftists. By the way, who are leftists? The, the chief of police was a man who was mitnacher, was settler, a religious guy with a pound his head. And he became almost a traitor and a leftist for Netanyahu. The state attorney, Shai Nitzan, uh, learned in yeshiva in, in his youth days, not really a leftist, so to speak, not an anti-religious, anti-Jewish or anything. And then they, again, a religious guy. And then the attorney general that he appointed to be secretary of the cabinet, his secretary, and then attorney general, a man who was, who was going with the kippah and very religious, and his father was a member of the Likud Center. And then the judges, 
I want to go further, but the, the, the head of the court, it comes from a religious family, I think he's religious itself. He makes, he was able to repeat the slide that they are faking it and it's all against him and they are after him. And he has many people following him. Again, look at your country and see how many people follow Mr. Trump after they saw who the guy was, still to this day. So there's something in human nature and some people know how to, to reach uh, the population or parts of the population. And this is a challenge of democracy in my place, in your place. Right. Uh, it always drives me crazy to hear uh, Netanyahu supporters and many people on the Israeli right say, well, it's a, it's a deep state conspiracy against a right wing uh, Likud prime minister against Netanyahu that the, these cases are uh, uh, fabricated to try to, to topple Netanyahu. Uh, the same system a little over a decade ago uh, went after a center-left prime minister, Ehud Olmert, uh, and the Israeli right had no problem with that. You know, same system uh, going after the most powerful man in the country and, uh, and yes, uh, trying to... And by the way, if you look at, I think, YouTube, you'll find Netanyahu openly saying when Olmert was indicted, not yet convicted, that he should not continue to be a prime minister because there is a, a chance that he will not make the right decision because of his criminal charges. Yeah. He said it openly against Olmert when Olmert was indicted by the same system, by the same people. Now, when he was in that case, he said the opposite, and people didn't care. And some people, half the society, voted for him and, and his uh, satellites. So, yes, we have a real problem and we need to work hard to try to restore or not to allow destroy what we have built quite successfully along 75 years of Israel. Yes, uh, that will be uh, put to the test. Uh, Dan, I wanted to shift slightly and focus on the Palestinian question. Um, I think it's fair to say that you, uh, over the past, say, several years and maybe longer, have broken away from the historic or traditional Likud position on the issue. Uh, but I don't think you're the only one. We've seen uh, Ehud Olmert and Sipi Livni, also formerly senior Likud uh, ministers, uh, break from what I guess was right-wing orthodoxy on the issue. Uh, Ariel Sharon also, I think, in his own way, came around to the determination that continuing to hold all of the territories and unchecked settlement expansion and no real separation from the Palestinians will eventually lead Israel to a one-state reality. So is that a fair sum-up of your position these days? And I think more interestingly, how did your thinking about the the Palestinian question, this critical issue, change or evolve over the years? Well, you've put again two questions, I, I <laughs> one by one. Yes. Uh, what you said about me generally is right, but it's partially true. Why partially? The Likud historic way in which I believe, and I was raised on this and, and, and spoke to people and convinced people, was yes, that we can have, uh, in the end, one state from the Jordan to the sea, and it will be democratic, fully equally. Nobody thought of a South African apartheid regime. So Likud really believed, and you hear it in Begin's idea, I don't want to go into details now, he always said we are going to have full option for all Palestinians, all Arabs who live here on the territories to become Israeli citizens if they choose so. And he even said in the Knesset, we don't want to be apartheid. He said we don't want to be Rhodesia, that is apartheid. We cannot do otherwise. So this was the idea. So the, the, the good idea to me came to a, a T-junction, so to speak. I The numbers didn't play the way I believed or wanted them to play. And I had to give up either on democracy or on part of the land. I gave up on part of the land painfully. 
And the other Likudniks did not continue. They parted from Likud, gave up on parts of democracy. So it's mm. only I or, or uh, you know, Tsipi Livni or whoever you mentioned earlier, uh, that we, we saw, I, I saw that if I continue, we really have one state, but the numbers would make us a binational state where the majority is not clear and it should not be a Zionist dream. It puts everything that we have done here under huge risk. And I thought that we need to make a, 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 to make a decision. And I made mine. And uh, so did some of my friends before me, after me, for many years now. I thought that we cannot continue with the idea of the whole land because we'll give up on democracy. And in, in, in fact, on Zionism. Zionism never said it's our land because it was promised to us to return to it, period. They, all, they said this, definitely. And they added one other thing, simple, minor thing. We rule it by majority, by majority. Because Zionism assumed that Arabs will vote, otherwise you don't need majority. Now they change. They find all sorts of tricks and ways. Autonomy without voting, which Begin said will never be. Uh, so the Likud moved away from the uh, basic Likud uh, idea that may not be practical anyway. And I moved away. So this is the one, one thing that I wanted to say about uh, where we are. Now about what happens now. Let me say it would surprise you. It's not because of Netanyahu that we don't have an agreement with the Palestinians. Uh, you know, I very critical of this policy, and I'll come to it in a minute. But I was there at Camp David in July 2000 with President Clinton, with Barack and Arafat. And Barack broke all sorts of taboos, like dividing Jerusalem, and wanted to have an agreement, and went all the way more than I thought he would ever go. And Arafat said no. And Clinton very clearly said, pointed the finger at Arafat and said, you are to blame. So Israel did not have always a Netanyahu government or Likud government. You had other governments, like the Barak government of 2000. And I remember then Tom Friedman, my friend, wrote an article in the New York Times in the form of a letter uh, from uh, uh, Clinton to Arafat. Dear Yasser, writes Bill. This is the way he wrote articles. And he said, uh, <laughs> Still if, writes articles. if it's 1967, we'll help you. If it's 48, forget about it. And for Arafat, it was 48. And then, by the way, Sharon gave up all of Gaza without asking anything in return. Courageously. Tough political uh, decision. He got it through. And what did we get in return? Uh, launching pad of rockets against Israel in guided by Hamas. And then came uh, Ehud Olmert, who courageously again, with Abu Mazen, offered things that even Barak didn't think of, including uh, internationalizing the, the holy base in Jerusalem. And Abu Mazen didn't take it. So I don't think that it's because of us that there is no agreement. There were Israeli governments went all the way, and the Palestinian side never gave up on the basic raison d'etre of PLO, which was not the territory. It was established before 67. It was that Israel will exist. Another way to give up the idea of what they call right to return to Israel. You have a state, we said to them, I said it came David. All the refugees who want to go to the land of Israel will be able to go, but to the part that is Palestine, not to the part that is Israel. And they never agreed to that. So it's not our fault, I think, that there is no agreement. The question that stands now is not this. Now it seems very unlikely to have an agreement with Hamas and Fatah don't agree. And, and with this Israeli government, I don't see a way to finish the conflict and it in, in, in a few, in short time. The question is what happens if we don't do this, and we can't do this, I'm afraid that we may be sliding 
permanently into a slippery slope of one state. Uh, in that we uh, erase, in a way, the green line and make it totally uh, a one-state situation for all Israelis, but not for the Palestinians who are there. And if we end up with one, one state from the Jordan to the sea, it's either going to be non-democratic in whatever form that they will have it, and or non-Jewish, because it will be half and half, maybe even Jewish minority. So the Palestinians have this Trump card in their hands. If they know anything and continue like this, and we continue settling all over the place, they will one day stand up and say, you know what, we don't want the state, we want to vote. Why do Jews in Hebron vote and Arabs don't? What will we say then? So we need to do something to stop this slippery slope uh, uh, movement uh, of sliding uh, into a one-state situation. So I think that we need to try to block the way to one state and leave open the way to two states even if there's no agreement. And I think this can be done unilaterally. I don't think we can uh, take the army out without any agreement because what happened in Gaza will happen in Ramallah and then the whole thing will, will sink in blood. But I think if I were the government, uh, which obviously I'm not, I, I would say first, what is the border that I want? Israel never said it. Openly said with the Knesset and government, we won't say the, the fence line, what they call the wall, the fence line, within which 80% of the settlers live. We think this needs to be the border of Israel. You want to negotiate? Come and negotiate. As long as you don't, we treat this as our end goal. Second, we don't take the army out until we have an agreement. And we don't have an agreement, we can't do that. But we, we ask all the Israelis who live there, if they wish to come to the, what will be Israel in the blocks and Israel will help them. If they don't, we may defend them, but we're not going to invest any more in settlements outside the, the border that we want, the defense line. And then we tell the Palestinians, you know, with an agreement or without agreement, let, we want to let you know, from all, this, all civil functions, we'll, we'll not do them anymore. From January 1st, no more Israeli police and police work on the other side of the fence. You have to do it for your own people. Uh, from February 1st, no more zoning and planning for Israel. You will have the zoning and planning. I, I will try to create a, a situation as close as possible to a two-state situation without taking the army out and having an agreement because we can't do that. And I think by this, we would dramatically change the, 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 our position and blocking the way to one state, leaving open the way to two states and showing seriousness is all that can be done now. And, and I think we can do it unilaterally with support of many people in the world. Uh, but continuing not only what we have, but continue to settle and to build more and connect more uh, and erase more the, 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 the uh, line that was and not creating a new line will uh, put us in a very difficult situation. And I think that this is what we need to do. And uh, it's true that the Palestinians have lost, rightly, have lost the support of many people in the world. The Arab world is not very much interested in them. Uh, you saw the Abraham calls that thing because they blew it. Option, they never took it. And people got tired of them. And now they're split among themselves and don't speak to each other between Gaza and the West Bank or Judea and Samaria. So it's, it's, a, it's a bad situation for them, but it's bad for us. And I think that uh, that this is what we need to do and take it from there. Uh, but thinking that because it's not good for them, it's good for us, as if the zero-sum game is a mistake. And leadership has to look not on what we have now, but down the road, where does it go? Does it go in a, in a good way or in a bad way? And I would try to do this. Uh, and uh, uh, this is my advice 
which is not very much listened to these days. Yes, but I think uh, a lot of Israel Policy Forum's uh, supporters and many others, uh, both in Israel and around the world, would agree with uh, with what you just laid out, uh, at least trying to uh, consolidate Israel's position. You know, uh, no, the, the, the nice people agree with me uh, is interesting, but it reminds me of a story that I heard of, I think... Uh, uh, forgot who it was, an American competitor for president uh, who uh, spoke very enthusiastically in a, in, a, in a campaign in the election. And in the end, somebody said, Mr. So-and-so, don't be afraid. Every decent American will vote for you. And his answer was not good enough. I need a majority. <laughs> so, uh, there are people who support me. It's not good enough. I need a majority. Right, right. Uh, not just the decent people, but the others as well. Yeah. Uh, but but no, I think I think uh, at least working towards uh, some kind of separation model, as opposed to what you rightly pointed out, is current government policy, which is uh, I, I guess unchecked expansion, handing administrative responsibilities over a lot of the West Bank to Betelel Smotrich, uh, Itamar Benvir. Uh, uh, as we know, is uh, has some uh, some control over uh, the border police in the West Bank and so on and so forth. Uh, in other words, the new Netanyahu government is doing the exact opposite of what you just laid out. Um, I'm curious just to get your sense, uh, you know, aside from the, the bigger picture kind of future of Israel as both a Jewish and democratic state, what do you think in the immediate term are the dangers of, say, Betzela Smotrich having control over the civil administration or uh, the coordinator of government activities in the territory, the two IDF bodies who actually run the West Bank uh, or, or Itamar Benver controlling the West Bank border police. Uh, give us a sense of how concerned you are about those issues in the media term. Well, you mentioned Itamar Benver, and let me say the following. You know, there was an American Jew who made aliyah to Israel uh, in the 70s or 80s, called Meir Kahana. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a racist. He spoke racist language. He was elected to the Knesset in 1984. And we, the Likud, initiated the change in the constitutional law in 1985 to ban parties and people from running for election if they incite racism. We did it. And in 1988, the coming election... I was the one who collected all the overt material of Kahana's actions and speeches and the Knesset proposals and interviews and brought them to the Central Election Committee and then to the court to ban racism or incitement to racism for running for election. He was banned. He was outside the legitimate circle of debate or political uh, disagreements. He was out of it. And uh, because he was a racist. And this, I, I always said, you can be left or right for territories, for peace. To be a racist is not an option. It's not legitimate in a democratic state, and it's definitely not legitimate in the Jewish state. After all, we have suffered from racism. Mm -hmm. And this was accepted in public. Itamar Ben-Gvir was his disciple of Kahana, and at those camps this day, he was just in a, in a memory service to him some um, two or three months ago. Uh, these people did not have a public support. Not that there is no racism in some people's hearts. All over the world there is, but there was a clear leadership message. This is not in the game. And he tried to go to the Knesset election. I think he got half a percent. 
Then Netanyahu needed him to get an immunity, which he didn't in the end, and legitimized him and, and put him together with others, and now he is part of the legitimate cause. That is to say, this already happened, that racist people are part of the legitimate Israeli system. This is a, a, a painful uh, reminder of where the value system is changing. Right. And uh, by, by the way, Don... But, you should remind our listeners that uh, Likud leaders and prime ministers actually, and Likud members such as yourself, actually left the Knesset plenum when Kahana was a Knesset member. It turned it back on him. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I was I was four years with him in the Knesset in 84 to 88. You know, I have good relationship or cordial relationship with all members of the Knesset. Jew, Arab, left, right, communist, capitalist, whatever. I never exchanged a word with Kahana. For me, Kahanism Racism is outside the circle of my acquaintances, people I talk to. There's something not to be even debated or convinced. It's outside the rules again. And we did something quite radical, not to allow them to run for the Knesset, because racism cannot be a, a legitimate policy in Israel. And uh, unfortunately, this changed. You know, it changed, might have changed all over the world, with the centrality of the nation and we, not the others and so forth. And this, I don't want to go into details. This is what already happened about the, the settlements. It's a big question: Will they continue or even uh, reinforce and have more uh, investment and, and attempts at expanding and uh, all over the place, not in the specific areas near the former armistice line in the blocks uh, that we wanted to have part of it, but all over the place? This is going to be very dangerous. Will it uh, bring about an, uh, an objection, in forceful objection? Will it not? How will Israeli society deal with it? One thing we'll miss. We won't have the Supreme Court, if this happens, to control it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not that the Supreme Court did all that I wanted. In some cases, did more, something less, because this is the court all over the place. You can't, you can't write a recipe for the court. But the court was there. It was a force to be taken into account where you, you decide your policy or you take decisions and resolutions on action. Now this will, the balance is going to be changed and they may uh, do things that will make us uh, sink deeper into that situation, which is quite bad. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, like, like we said, going in the opposite direction of what Israel likely needs. Um, Dan, final question for you maybe, uh, and maybe bringing back full circle to where we began with uh, the proposed uh, overhaul or destruction of, or, or deformation, as you put it, of the Israeli judicial system. Uh, how concerned are you, I mean, not to repeat the first question, but we, we're looking at uh, mass demonstrations. The opposition leaders like Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid have called for uh, the public to take to the streets. Uh, civil society groups are already mobilizing uh, and... Netanyahu, for his part, has shot back and said this is uh, uh, incitement to uh, sedition, uh, it's public unrest. Uh, there are certain members of Itamar Ben-Gvir's party who said uh, uh, the opposition leaders like Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid should be arrested uh, for treason. So as somebody who, uh, who has spent his entire life, um, like we said, at the highest levels of Israeli politics, uh, what are we? What are we perhaps looking at in the coming days and weeks, uh, if and when Yariv Levine and the current government actually start pushing through this legislation? Can street protests actually stop them? Well, we have to see. I hope there will be enough objection, all in legal terms, nothing outside the law, 
and there will be uh, uh, enough uh, people and organizations in the civil society and in the political world. After all, uh, out of 120 members, 556 are against the government and 644. They have majority. They're a legitimate government, unfortunately, but this is it. But uh, democracy is not only about the legitimacy of the elected governments, but the legitimacy of protest. And the First Amendment, as you would call it, freedom of speech and demonstration. And uh, will this uh, uh, be taken into account by the government in the process of legislation? I don't know. I think everyone should ask himself what he can do now. Uh, or he or she, of course, if they, and all in the, in, within the law, but uh, taking into account the seriousness of where we are to try to stop it or, or not to let it go all the way through. Uh, I can't tell you I know the results uh, of this uh, struggle, but I hope there will be a meaningful struggle not to allow the present Netanyahu uh, leadership to turn Israel away, long way away from what it wanted to be and used to be. And aside from street demonstrations, are there any other tools that uh, the the opposers... Well, there, there was the legal the legal tool, the, the appeal to the court, were there. They want to, uh, to uproot this uh, from from the position or from the, those who object, those the individual or groups who may be hurt. I don't know to what extent they will succeed, but it seems they have the majority for it. So this is what we can do. We can, I, I do talk, and other people do talk, and uh, we are listened to by some people. Do we convince? I can't say. And there are demonstrations, there are uh, people who sign letters to the press. There are also things that the position can do in order to get uh, its message clear and to show the government that there is a, or there should be a limit to what they can do in, in such a radical change of the whole structure of the democratic system of Israel. I hope uh, it will be uh, meaningful and strong enough, but it's an open question. I don't have an answer to it. Yes, um, I think that's an honest answer, uh, and it remains to be seen. Uh, well, how big the pushback will be from the broader public and whether, like we said, it'll have a real impact on the thinking of Netanyahu and this current government. Uh, Dan Meridor, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with us on these very, very critical and fateful issues. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, many thanks to Dan Meridor for his generous time and insights. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening. 